0: Just go to Indeed.com slash Bluewire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash Bluewire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: It's the True Faith Newcastle United podcast. I'm Alex Hurst, and this is a podcast about the people that own Newcastle United, or 80% of it, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia or the PIF, as it is better known. Uh, I don't know too much about them. They haven't said loads since they bought the club back in October 2021. Uh, but what they have done is achieved huge success on and off the pitch uh, since they bought the club alongside uh, their fellow owners, Amanda Staveley, Murdoch, Ducey, uh, Jamie Rubin. Uh, so I thought I'd do a podcast and get three of the uh, most well-researched and decorated... Uh, academics i could find to talk about the subject of the pif who they are where they came from what they want to do and where newcastle united fit into that Uh, if you like what we do and if you like this podcast uh, the full interview my full interviews with all three of our guests on our on our Patreon platform right now at six pounds 60 per month loads more of these true faith podcasts and it keeps this podcast going we'd be really grateful if you could join us and we've got loads of content building up to the new season which i cannot wait for um thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoy the show our first guest on the podcast this week is professor simon chadwick who is the professor of eurasian sport and director for the center for eurasian sport working at the intersection of sport business politics and technology particularly in a eurasian context Uh, many thanks to simon for his time and i asked him Uh, essentially, who are the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia and what do they do?
2: So the Public Investment Fund is, in essence, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia. Uh, A Sovereign Wealth Fund is a state-established body um, that is charged with investing a country's wealth. So most obviously in, in Saudi Arabia, that wealth probably as, as much as, as 70%, maybe even a little higher. Uh, Saudi Arabia's wealth is drawn from oil and gas. Uh, and so what the Public Investment Fund does is, is to take all of that money and, and keep in mind this money has been made over decades and decades uh, and, and, and invested in assets that the, 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 the Saudi Arabian government wants to invest in. And those assets could be revenue-generating assets. So a kind of traditional investment model, you you, you spend a dollar to make $2 back kind of investment. Or alternatively, um, they make investments in projects that are of political or strategic significance to them.
1: Our next guest is Neil Quilliam, who is an Associate Fellow with the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House here in the United Kingdom. I spoke to Neil actually on this podcast back in 2020, summer of 2020, uh, when the takeover was still being considered by the Premier League and uh, Neil was really informant of them and has been again. And I started off by asking Neil um, that essentially no one that I know uh, had ever heard of PIF before the Newcastle United takeover, yet now... Uh, it seems to be in the news for all sorts of reasons, whether that's links with um, Uber, Disney, um, but most notably um, the Live Golf project, which PIF has started. Uh, I asked him how that had come about and whether this uh, much higher profile for the PIF was intentional and what that meant for both PIF and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia.
3: No, I mean, I think... I. I- I mean, I think I think PIF sort of serves many purposes, but definitely, I think I mean, it, it's a central plank of that is is giving the kingdom, you know, a, a much much higher profile uh, and a much more let's say positive profile. It's also tasked, along with the Ministry of Investment, but you know, bringing yeah, uh, foreign direct investment into the country. So by you know by by investing. In Newcastle, that clearly raises its international profile. The same with, you know, with the Live Golf series. But the same with, you know, buying into Uber, buying into Disney, buying into Boeing. You've suddenly got this, this, you know, massive brand recognition, which which you would never have had before. The other Gulf states, you know, traditionally, I mean, the Qataris and the Emiratis, and way back the Kuwaitis, you know, were much more prominent in this space. And I think the Saudis were quite late you know, coming to the table. But they've done so with a, you know, with a, with, a, with a big bang. You know, and the ambition is very much for PIF, you know, to be the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, you know. And the goal, as, as has been set out by, you know, by the governor, Yasser al-Rumayan, is to have, you know, two million, sorry, two trillion dollars worth of assets under, you know, under their belt by, by 2030, which is just a staggering staggering amount of money
1: and this this change you said had been largely led by Mohammed bin bin Salman since he came to power it seems quite radical in terms of a change of direction you know has he had much opposition to that How how is Saudi public feeling being surrounding the PIF and this extravagant expenditure of which you talk
3: yeah I mean I would say yes uh he's he's been a driving force behind this um and as I sort of alluded to before, I think in wanting to you know help this tran- transformation in the kingdom, um, basically the the o- sort of the older, larger conglomerate businesses just weren't really fit for purpose. They had sort of emerged and grown up in an era, you know, where the states the states were enormously wealthy because of the oil re- revenues, but would hand out contracts, you know, with limited competition. So there was a there was a certain you know relationship between state and very large companies, um, and, and a lot of it would be sewn up. Whereas I think he's he's seen PIF as being a bit of a disruptor in that being startup sounds strange when you've got such a huge budget, but you know, like a startup coming into this space and just trying to sort of set fires absolutely everywhere. Um in terms of you know. Is there resistance or i'm not there are no signs of resistance but but definitely you know amongst some of those more established traditional larger sort of family businesses you know there's a sense of frustration because previously you know they were the beneficiaries of large-scale contracts and their companies would pick those up but they're you know they're very much sort of i guess on on the side now and are unable to compete with some of the businesses that pif is bringing in externally and certainly, they can't compete with these businesses that PIF itself is establishing. So it's, I would say, it you know, it's not it's not normal really for a sovereign wealth fund to be a disruptor, but in in this sense, it's you know, it's it's playing that role. It's its establishment, but at the same time, it's it's somehow a, you know, has a disruptive role.
1: Our third guest is Dr. Christine Coats Ulrichsen, PhD, and he is a Baker Institute Fellow for the Middle East. Working across the disciplines of political science, international relations, and international political economy. Uh, I kicked off things with Dr. Ulrichsen, uh, asking him about when it was particularly and what happened to the PIF around 2015 that brought about this transformation um, in its fortunes and its role that would ultimately lead to the investment in Newcastle United.
4: But up until 2015, it was a pretty low profile. It was focused on domestic investment. It didn't really have any international profile. And today it's described as the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. But up until 2015, it was often said that Saudi Arabia didn't have a sovereign wealth fund. There was nothing like the equivalent, for example, of the Kuwait Investment Authority, the Qatar Investment Authority, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, run by other Gulf countries. These were huge organizations that really were... Investing massively overseas whereas a public investment fund was a much smaller scale Domestic focused investment, so they would invest in local companies in Saudi Arabia What happened in 2015 is that Mohammed bin Salman seems to have decided that the PIF would be the vehicle that he would use to put his transformation plans into action, so in March 2015 the authority for the PIF was transferred from the Ministry of Finance to the Royal Court, which uh, Mohammed bin Salman, as Deputy Crown Prince at the time, was part of, he's now Crown Prince. I think he was also the Royal Court Minister at the time. So he transferred authority of PIF to his oversight. And what you saw very quickly was he put um, Yasser al-Ramayan in charge as governor. Um, Al-Ramayan had been one of uh, Mohammed bin Salman's closest and earliest advisors. And he likes to trust a very, he has a a very small circle of trusted advisors, especially those who've been with him from the beginning. So he put his, probably his most trusted advisor in charge in 2015, he became chairman of the board. And very quickly, the PIF suddenly began to develop an international profile for the first time. Starting to invest in major international companies such as Uber, for example, but also being the vehicle, whenever Mohammed bin Salman would announce a major project and the Saudis call them these Giga projects like Neom, this new city in northwestern Saudi Arabia, there's a huge entertainment complex called Qadir, which is being built outside Riyadh, there's massive developments along the Red Sea coast, every time Mohammed bin Salman announced a Giga project, it would be then passed to PIF for implementation. And that's not just the sort of entertainment and hospitality projects. It's also, for example, Saudi Arabian military industry, which is a huge plan to turn Saudi Arabia into one of the biggest in defense industry, um, create a massive defense industries company in Saudi Arabia to localize production of arms. And again, that was given to PIF. So every time he's made an announcement he's turned to PIF to implement it. And so I would argue that in the Saudi Arabia of today, PIF is actually the most important part of the contemporary Saudi state because it's not the ministries, the government ministries that NBS. Mohammed bin Salman, turns to. He doesn't go to the Ministry of Finance and say, do this. He goes to PIF. And so PIF is now so closely focused with all of Mohammed bin Salman's projects, including Vision 2030, and they have their own Vision 2030 Realization Program within PIF, the two are effectively inseparable.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast.
1: uh, sometimes match courts in James's Park, Yasir al-Ramoyan. Uh, I asked uh, Neil Quilliam about uh, Yasir al-Ramoyan and how he came to prominence in both the PIF and where he sits in the kind of inner circle of the Saudi royal family.
3: I mean, he was an investment banker. He led Saudi-Franci capital. Um, he was a successful um Banker in in the kingdom, you know, he he transformed and turned around the fortunes of that bank, and I mean his own self-reporting really is that you know he was he was an unknown figure to to MBS, but you know he as as happens sometimes in the kingdom, his you know his his profile or his you know his CV somehow ended up on or the you know bio ended up on MBS's. Desk, and um, you know he was he was invited to come in, um, and then basically told, "This is your job. This is this is what this is what you're you know this is what you're going to do from now on." And 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 I think you know the story goes. You know he said, "Very well, sir. I need like three months. You know I got to give three months' notice." And it was like, "No, you're going to have one month's notice." And then I think he got a call three or four days later saying, "Right, your office is ready." Um, so. So in 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 a way, you know, he's he's gone from being to the world at large an, an unknown figure. People like myself have been watching, you know, Saudi for a, for a long time. You know, we tend we tend to know who's who and who's who's on the circuit, and and he came almost from you know from nowhere to to absolute real prominence. Um, I mean, he's not just governor of PIF, but I mean, he's chair of Saudi aramco as well you know which is the world's largest publicly traded company in the world and he sits on the boards of many other you know companies pif and non-pif related companies so he's he's almost come from nowhere it seems to being you know an absolute key player within the system
1: so hopefully we know a little bit about the public investment fund now So I asked Professor Simon Chadwick about sport and football in particular and what role uh, that has played and is to play in the PIF's future.
2: So, um, I mean, the first thing I would say is I've I've spent time in the Gulf, um, a lot of time in the Gulf, and one of the things that you learn um, about the Gulf is that People do actually like sport there. It's 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 not a desert, uh, you know, when it comes to sport. Um, and so it's 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 somewhat disingenuous of, of people outside the region to be saying, "Well, you know, there's no culture of sport, and no one's interested in sport, and it's not important." And um, you know, clearly, if we're talking about I'm talking about comparing Newcastle with Dubai or Newcastle with downtown Doha, you know, we know which is the more passionate city about sport. Um, but if you look at somewhere like Riyadh, historically, uh, the Riyadh Derby um, has always been incredibly well attended. And even now you're, you're talking about those top level games in Saudi Arabia, drawing 50,000, 60,000 people on a, on, a, on, a, on a weekend basis. And we're not, we're not talking one offs. They do this very often on a, on, a, on a regular basis. So I think the first thing to say is, is, is that there is a culture of sport in Saudi Arabia, um, particularly football people are very very passionate about football certainly the Saudi arabians I've been with you know they their rival rivalries are just as bitter and and, and um, just as brutal but also just as humorous as you would find anywhere else in the world but I don't think necessarily these countries Saudi Arabia Qatar United Arab Emirates Kuwait Oman Bahrain historically they haven't had state level sport policies or strategies. So in other words, they've not really thought about how to manage sport as countries. And and so what we've seen over the last certainly over the last five or five or ten years, possibly over the last 15 years, is a more strategic approach to to sport. And by strategic approach to sport, I mean is is the government thinking very carefully about the role that sport plays in, in economics, in politics, but also in society as well. And, and certainly in Saudi Arabia's, Saudi Arabia's case, this has culminated in um, this more strategic approach being adopted. We began to see that about 2015, 2016. One of the, the episodes at that point that really caught my attention was um, essentially a plan to uh, privatize all its football clubs. So that's privatizing inverted commas because. Saudi Arabia's football clubs historically have always been bailed out by state institutions. So, if they get into financial trouble, which very often they do, you know, many of Saudi Arabian football clubs, even now as we speak, have financial trouble. Uh, they have financial problems, and historically, what the government has done is is just to bail them out. Um, now, you know, great for them. However. This doesn't motivate clubs to get better. Right? It doesn't motivate clubs to think about, well, you know, how do, we, how do we control costs? How do we generate revenues? So what the Saudi Arabian government began to think about, well, is, OK, if we cut cut the cord between the state and the clubs so that they have to become independent, they'll then become more entrepreneurial and innovative. They'll become more efficient. They'll think about how they control their costs, how they generate revenues and so forth. Now, that is still ongoing. So the, the, the cord between the state and the clubs hasn't been cut yet. It's still ongoing. However, for instance, I talked there about enterprise, trying to promote enterprise. So one of the big agendas in Saudi Arabia right now is, is to pro- promote an enterprising culture. Um, because what I said about you know, when the state is there and the state is constantly backing you, you don't need to work hard. You don't need to be efficient. You don't need to think about making money. Because the state will always bail you out. Now that that actually cuts across the whole of Saudi Arabian society. So there isn't this culture of you know, setting up and running businesses. There isn't this culture of working for a business and thinking, well, you know, I'm gonna make this, I'm gonna make this big and successful. So what what the Saudi Arabian government has been trying to do is is to change the culture of of the country and get people working harder. Get people working independently, getting people thinking creatively, and basically cutting the cord with the state, so that you know what you get is. And you you look at the you know, the the Deloitte annual money league, for example. You know, you look at the top twenty or the top thirty, and you know, half of them typically um, are English Premier League clubs. And the reason, you know, one of the, not the only reason, but one of the reasons for that is those clubs know that if they don't cut their cloth accordingly, the government's not going to rescue them and they're going to fall foul of financial fair play. So they're in the business of taking care of their revenues, but also trying to control costs. And this kind of commercial discipline or market discipline is one of the things that the Saudi Arabian government has been trying to achieve. And, and if we go back to 2018, you you, you may recall that there was a rumor that uh, that the Saudi Arabian government actually wanted to buy Manchester United, and and that story was true. So the the, the preference of decision make decision makers in Riyadh is that they they wanted to buy Manchester United. Um, however, the Glazers didn't want to sell, uh, and 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 you know everybody's got their price. But I think the price of the Glazers was so high that the Saudi Arabian government thought, well, you know, there are other alternatives available. And and so there was the intent there to buy a club. But uh, essentially everything went dormant. But of course, towards the, the end of 2019, <clears throat> in the early part of 2020, and I was actually sat on a plane in January 2020 about to go to the Gulf when somebody uh, when somebody wrote to me um, and said, you know, do, you, "Do you know that Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund is trying to buy Newcastle United?" And my, my reaction to that, and I I stayed with this for a while. I, my position didn't change for about two or three months afterwards. Is I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it because if you look at everything that that Saudi Arabia has been doing over the last three or four years, it is all very very strategic. It's they 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 have a plan. A a country plan, which is going to take them to twenty thirty, to the achievement of their national vision or the intended achievement of their national vision, and and so up until that point, it appeared to me as though Saudi Arabia didn't engage in short term speculative investments. But I'm sure your listeners will recall, you know, kind of May twenty twenty, the public investment fund invested a lot of money, for example, in Disney. Uh, and since then, it has offloaded that holding. It sold what it bought in in, in um, early twenty twenty, and and I think that that led me to reconsider, especially as the stories about PIF and and, and Newcastle began to, to to kind of surge again in the middle of uh, in the middle of twenty twenty.
1: I asked Doctor Ulrichsen about that great question, which plagued many of our lives uh, between May twenty and or July twenty, and. Uh, what, October 21, and that was separation between the state and the public investment fund. It's something which is still put to Newcastle fans in the minute, from uh, journalists who are less than enthusiastic about Newcastle's ownership, and it may be an issue for the club in the future. I don't know, I hope not, but from what we've heard, from what we've seen reported about uh, certain things, said by PAF to get the deal done, uh, separation could come back to be an issue. But I asked Dr Ulrichson uh, what his thoughts on the matter were.
4: Well, I mean, it's not an independent company. It's a sovereign. I mean, it describes itself on its own website now as a sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. And the clue there is the word sovereign it's part of the state. It's a state owned entity. You know, it gets its resources from the state and it invests in the name of the state. And of its uh, I think there were eight board members, six of them are government ministers, the other two are royal court advisors, including al Ramayan. And the chairman of the board is the crown prince, who is effectively the ruler-in-waiting, the, the head of state in all but name. And so it is a state entity. And I think any attempt to try and prove separation was going to be extremely challenging, unless you could prove it on a, as a legal entity that it was separate. I mean, that was probably the route. And that, that might have been the route that they, Newcastle could have gone down, had had that gone to an arbitration which, of course, it never did, never, never reached that stage. I think what happened, I mean, I think the reason why they were being asked to prove separation was because the Saudi government had been implicated in the theft of Premier League broadcasting rights by a an entity called BRQ. Now, BRQ seems to have been set up in Saudi Arabia in about 2017 And it was part of this whole campaign that the saudis and the uae had against qatar that they announced in 2017 they were cutting diplomatic ties with qatar they were accusing the qataris of all sorts of things uh, most of which were probably not true but they they had a big falling out with qatar from 2017 until it was resolved in january 2021 and as part of this campaign the saudis or people in saudi arabia set up a company called BQ. q they called it BQ q as in b out qatar it was a play on words because the company in qatar which is owned by the qatari government called b in sports owned the well, they acquired the broadcasting rights for the premier league in the middle east and so here you had a situation from 2017 onwards where the premier league's broadcasting rights in the biggest market in the middle east in saudi arabia were being pirated And in 2020, there was a World Trade Organization ruling which basically said they were were operating within Saudi Arabia, there were entities and individuals within Saudi Arabia who were behind it, and the Saudi state uh, either didn't do anything or were unable to prevent it. And so that established a link between the Saudi government and this BLQ organization, which had been basically bootlegging the Premier League's broadcasting rights. And so for that same Saudi state then to control a Premier League football team was, I think, where the issue lay. Could they, would they have passed the owner and director's test if they were proven to have been implicated in the theft of of broadcasting rights? And so I think that's where the issue was, kind of got stuck for that time in 2020 and 2021. What changed in October 2021? The announcement that BN had its access restored in Saudi Arabia was followed 24 hours later by the, the announcement that the the, the, uh, the takeover had been approved. I mean, in my view, that was the stumbling block and the fact that the approval came 24 hours after the Saudis finally restored BN's access to Saudi Arabia is, is effectively... I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence, and of course, it unblocks the entire process. And the Premier League announced that it had received legally binding assurances, which they haven't really said what they are. But I just, I just think that the, the issue all along was the, the fact that the Premier League's uh, broadcasting rights were being infringed, and the Saudi state was uh, implicated, if not completely directly involved. And so I think that's what happened there. And uh, what I think happened in 2017, the Saudi, uh, there were elements in Saudi Arabia, possibly including people around the Crown Prince, who were looking at ways to kind of poke the Qataris to... And someone thought, okay, we'll do this. We'll set up a fake television station. We'll call it We'll We'll nick all their rights. But they weren't really thinking, okay, but what happens in three years if we want to buy a football team in the Premier League? I mean, there wasn't that sort of joined up thinking. You know, it seemed like a good idea in 2017 to just sort of get one up on Qatar. But then, of course, it had consequences. And it had consequences in 2020 when the Saudi state, or at least elements of the Saudi state in the PIF thought they'd quite like to buy a Premier League football team. And so the fact that it was resolved and then within 24 hours the takeover took place, you know, in my view, they were linked all along.
1: I then asked uh, Neil Quilliam about... How things have been in Saudi Arabia, um, for both the public and the PIF since the acquisition of the club in October, twenty twenty
3: one. Very well known. It's widely known that uh that PIF has invested in Newcastle, and I think the last time we spoke, I said, you know, if that happens, then you're going to suddenly have a you know, nearly a whole country's worth of of, of supporters. Um. And that, I mean, that speaks volumes also to, you know, to the Premier League. Uh, just, you know, first one, I mean, I've been going in and out of the region for a very long time, and I used to go to the Palestinian territories when I was a much younger man, and those were the days when Liverpool, you know, were, 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 were I suppose they, they are now, but, you know, they're really flying high, and people that, young children would just come up to me, the only words they could speak would be Liverpool or Man United, you know, this this is, this is is this is the Premier League, this is the kind of language and the currency. So... I think I think the purchase has been massively popular, um, and it, and it, and it's widely well known. Um, if you speak to uh, sort of so, so, so sort of within within the say the political or within the business establishment, they would say to you, you know, this is you know this we have our own reasons for making this purchase, and if if Newcastle doesn't you know go and win the Champions League, you know we're not going to lose any any sleep over that. Um, that wasn't that wasn't the simple reason for you know doing doing so, but but I'm sure that they will want success. I mean they've seen their neighbours you know investing in 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 other clubs that have done you know very well. Um, so I so I think sort of whether you see that as healthy competition or whatever it might be, I think I think there'll be a real drive um, to want Newcastle to do you know extremely well, but that but that isn't going to be like we want we want them to win the premier league this this coming season i think you know there's recognition that it's going to need a long-term investment and a build-up towards that um but i was so i would have said you know i mean these guys set visions out to 2030 they've set visions out to 2050 um i haven't heard any sort of vision time on this but i, but I imagine somewhere in their mind they're thinking you know this is this is a goal to which you know we're working from and i think you know, the idea that, you know, Newcastle being, you know, being what it is as a football club and having its long history, that's something that, you know, they would very much cherish in going forward. So, so if you're, you know, if you're, if you're sort of bouncing around, great to bounce around the middle at the moment, but if you're bouncing around the middle in, you know, six or seven years time, um, I suspect they want to put some, you know, some heat under somebody's feet to, to lift that up into the top six.
1: Very exciting answer from from Neil there. Um, now we've discussed, or you heard about the impact of the purchase of Newcastle United in Saudi Arabia and potential plans for the future. I asked Professor Chadwick to talk about another accusation, often put unfairly, in my view, but um, that Newcastle United fans are engaged in sports washing, um, or that the sole purpose of uh, the purchase of the football club is sports washing or massaging of a country's PR. Here's Simon's very interesting answer.
2: Uh, I, I revisit again what I've said several times already, which is that um, I've been in the Gulf lots of times, I don't know, 50, 60, 50, 60, 70 times, and I've been in lots of meetings with lots of people you know, I've met taxi drivers and construction workers and I've met uh, senior government officials and sponsors and people who run football clubs and not once, not once have I heard anybody talk about sport washing. So I think that that I think the characterization of what Saudi Arabia has done and for that matter, what Qatar has done, what China has done, what Russia has done, what Britain does, what the United States has done. You know, I think that characterization is a very Western characterization of of country activity. Um, I, I don't think it, I'm not going to say I I I disagree with it or think it's wrong. I think the the phrase sport washing has merit. And if you look at some of the things that, um, for instance, you, you go back to nineteen. Well, you look you go back to the British Empire. You know, we sport washed. You know, the British used sport to sport wash. We didn't call it sport washing back then, but it was sport washing. You, know, you, you, you go through the 1936 and, and, and the Olympics and Adolf Hitler, that's sport washing. 1978 World Cup um, in Argentina. What we know is that the military hunter was was bribing rival teams to let Argentina win because it was going to make the country look better and better than it actually was. You know, the, the hunter was under pressure from, from dissidents you know, that, that potentially was sport washing as well. So I think using sports to influence perceptions and attitudes and behaviors towards a country is nothing new. The characterization of as sport washing is new. And so what we've got is we've, we've had rights groups, we've had Amnesty International and, and others using this, 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 term sport washing to draw attention to human rights abuses and 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 i think that that there are issues that need to be addressed in in countries like saudi arabia but i think to to exclusively characterize what saudi arabia is doing as sport washing is 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 a gross oversimplification and and i very often uh um, Say to people, you know, one person's sport washing is another person's soft power. And, and soft power is uh, attractive power. So countries use soft power so that, that we're attracted to them. Because if we're attracted to countries, we're more likely to cut business deals with them. We're more likely to go on holiday there. When it comes to military campaigns, we're more likely to trust them. Um, and so what Saudi Arabia is also trying to do is to, to use football as one example, as an instrument of soft power, because what essentially soft power is, is all about is is trying to demonstrate to others that you want the same things as they do, that you value the same things. And, and I can tell you, as somebody who travels the world, uh, you know, the, I, I always use Brazil as an example. I always say to my, uh, my, my students, you know, when you think about Brazil, what do you think? And and you know, ask the same question to your listeners. When you think about Brazil, what do you think? Well, you know, you think about fantastic as Mirandinha, if uh, I if, if, if I remember rightly, going back to the nineteen eighties. You, know, you you remember fantastic football, you know, sexy football, beaches, and and that's the stereotype that many of us have about Brazil, and that's been built up through Brazil projecting this image of itself as being, you know, kind of a, a hotbed of football. If you ask people what do you think about Saudi Arabia, well, you know what we think about Saudi Arabia is uh, is, is executions and human rights abuses, and, and and Saudi Arabia wants to change that narrative. It wants to change the perceptions that people around the world um, have of the country. And and as somebody who knows quite quite a few Saudi Arabians, they're very nice people. They've got a great sense of humour. Um, they're really hospitable. You know, they, they really do take care of you when you're with them. And yet we don't see that. What we see is, I mean, you know, we see all the negative stuff. And so I think this investment in football is part of this soft power projection because the Saudi Arabian government wants us to, to have positive associations, not negative associations. So some people might call it soft power, but I guess some people might alternatively refer to it as sport washing.
1: fascinating answer there from uh professor simon chadwick there on the issue of alleged sports washing uh totally different way of thinking about it and i'm so pleased uh, that he came on the show to articulate it um i'm going to finish off now on this podcast i hope it's been interesting to everyone i learned so much speaking to these guys um it's so interesting i'm so grateful to them for their for their time um I'm uh, going to finish off, I asked um, Dr. Christian Ulrikson about uh, a topic which I've tried to look into a little bit. Um, it's hard out there to find, well certainly uh, I probably think as good a description as uh, Dr. Ulrikson provided me. Um, but it's a topic that the detractors of the takeover are people who don't like the ownership of Newcastle United, some quite prominent, uh, prominent people on social media, or on the written press, Um, talk about often when talking about Newcastle United these days and that is the ongoing civil conflict in Yemen. Uh, I asked Dr Ulrichson to essentially give me uh, uh, an overview of of what happened, why it happened uh, and what is happening now. So I'll leave you with that if you're interested. Uh, Again I found it a fascinating answer. Grateful to all three of our guests um, for, for that time giving up the time to speak to you the listeners of the True Faith podcast hope the podcast has been informative this is the off season we're trying to do things differently at True Faith and provide you with some some different content I hope you've enjoyed the show like I said at the start all three of our guests full interviews with me on our Patreon platform um, for £6.60 a month I'll leave you uh, with the excellent and informative answer of Dr. El thanks for listening goodbye
4: well the Saudi led coalition led by the Saudi government, went into Yemen in March 2015, so two months after Salman became king, two months after he appointed Mohammed bin Salman as Minister of Defense. And so this was really Mohammed bin Salman's first big decision as Minister of Defense, was to effectively intervene in Yemen's conflict. Uh, Yemen has been undergoing a period of turmoil since the Arab Spring in 2011, which led to the ousting of its leader for more than thirty years, uh, President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had managed to sort of play different groups off for thirty years and have a very fragile, uneasy kind of um, game of balancing different competing interests wow. in Yemen. And after he was removed, uh, the, uh, what you saw was a movement in northern Yemen along the Saudi border, the Houthi movement in 2014 they actually allied themselves with the ousted president to then go south and capture the capital Sana'a and the Saudis were convinced that the Houthis were because they're an offshoot of Shia Islam they're they're not the same branch as Iran but they have in Saudi eyes been given support by Iran to some extent that's become a self-fulfilling prophecy as the war has gone on as as factions on the ground to radicalise, that support has become more visible. But in 2014, when the Houthis captured the capital, the Saudis felt like they were being surrounded by Iran by Iran's uh, regional supporters. Um, they saw, for example, in Damascus, uh, you know, the Assad regime having been given uh, Iranian support. They saw in Iraq after 2003, Iran becoming a major player in Iraqi politics. They Saudis were convinced, even though there was no direct evidence, that in Bahrain, the Iranians played a role in the 2011 protests. And so from a Saudi point of view, they saw themselves as surrounded by Iranian influence, which in their view is Shia influence, and the Saudis are the leaders of Sunni Islam. And they saw themselves surrounded by groups which were hostile, were radical, and were, um, in their view, answering to Tehran, to Iran. So the Saudis felt that they were going to do something about it. This was also the same time that the U.S. and other uh, Western powers, plus Russia and China, were negotiating with Iran for the Iran nuclear deal, which was uh, passed in 2015. And this was the Saudis' way of effectively telling the U.S. and others, fine, if you want to deal with Iran on a nuclear issue, you can. But for us, the threat from Iran is their regional destabilization. So if you're not going to take action, we will. And so they went into Yemen at the head of a coalition with the UAE and I think about eight or nine other Arab states. And so that's how they see it. They see it as they're trying to restore political order. They're trying to push back Iranian influence. The challenge, I think, for the Saudis is that they caused the Operation operation Decisive Storm. It uh, hasn't been decisive. It's been now more than seven years. They still haven't achieved any of their political or military objectives in the sense that the Houthis remain in control not only of the capital but of large areas of central and northern Yemen Iran's support has increased to the Houthis the conflict has generated multiple sub-conflicts and the Saudis can't figure out a way of extricating themselves in a way that doesn't make it look like they've lost so I think that's where they are and they has created a lot of reputational damage to the Saudis on the international stage, just because bombing from the air with airstrikes um, creates impressions that the Saudis don't necessarily care enough about targeting, about who they target, what they hit. You know, there've been instances of schools being bombed, of, uh, of mosques being bombed. Uh, there's been a lot of civilian casualties on the ground, and also after 2018 when there was a spotlight on Saudi human rights issues with the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, there was a lot of uh, congressional pressure from both Republicans and Democrats on Saudi Arabia and again using using Yemen as well as, uh, as sort of even more evidence that as you said in in, in sort of their words the Saudis are the bad guys in this in this in this conflict and so that's where we are today we're, we're seven years in the Saudi is still they can't win, but they don't quite know how to get out without looking like they've lost. And, uh, and of course, Yemen is now a failed state. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. There's famine in parts of Yemen. Obviously, with COVID, it's been a huge problem. And so we're kind of stuck.
5: And that's where we are. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.